I mean, nobody likes getting punched in the nose, not even sharks. All right, this is Congress Two Beers In. I'm Josh Shooter of the Government Affairs Institute. I'm here with my colleague, Mark. Good afternoon. And we have a special guest, James Wolner. Um, James is with a variety of different places now. James, what are your places? You have several places. Um, wow, you're coming in hot and heavy right yeah. away. I, big, not, big questions I, up front. Woo! I don't know. I wasn't prepared for that. <laughs> Where am I? So I am at a senior fellow at the R Street Institute. I am a lecturer in the Department of Political Science at Clemson University. I am a fly fishing aficionado. And I'm a big admirer of your uh, backyard. <laughs> Thank you. Right. So, yeah. All right. It's, it's I a think nice, that's it. I mean, I don't know. Nice I, don't know. No, I, I mean, probably cycling or something along those lines, too. But we're, we're oh, I, don't, I, I don't ride a bike anymore. So, it's too, first of all, dangerous and it's hard. Yeah. Yeah, it, it is hard. Um, I'm, I'm not I'm not a cyclist. Um, but that aside, uh, we brought James on because I have a couple of questions about the Senate. And the first one uh, is real straightforward. Um, why is the Senate doing nothing? Um, what what's going on with it? Because right now we're sort of bottled up. There was a flurry of activity earlier this year. And then now the Senate seems to be back to its old routine of just sort of like sitting around and stalling. Um, so where do you where do you see the Senate? Or how do you see the Senate these days, James? Well, I mean, right now the lights are turned off. The, I believe the doors are locked. They're on vacation. They're back home. Yep. So, you know, we have, there's a tragedy uh, in Texas. There's a, a school shooting. No one, no one likes that. It's, a, it's an awful thing. Um, and it's a very contentious issue. And if anything, what we do in places like Congress and in the Senate is we negotiate the non-negotiable. We talk about these contentious issues. And so, but there's a script that we follow. And right away, what's happened is that the Democrats are blaming the Republicans preemptively for filibustering this bill. But the last time I checked, they're not even there. Like they're, they went on vacation. They went home. Oh, I'm sorry. They're, they're in their states working. But you know, District whatever work it is, period. you can't pass a bill if you're not in D.C. in the Senate. Like you just let's just start there. Like that's just the basic thing. You can't filibuster a bill that's not on the floor. Well, they don't even have a they don't even have a draft to put on the floor yet. I mean, they're still not trying to negotiate that out, right? This is political malpractice. You know, if you look at the Senate calendar for your listeners, that's the the fancy way of saying it's just a list of things the Senate can do right now. And you put a bill on the calendar. Any senator can do it. A committee can do it. And you look at it and there's a list. And it's like before Chuck Schumer put these House passed bills on the calendar, there were no gun bills on the calendar. Like, that's just political malpractice. The very first thing you do is you put a bill that you want to, if you're Chris Murphy, you wake up in the morning on the first day of Congress and you go to work and you put your gun bill on the calendar. Number one, it's not there. He doesn't have it on there. Does he not know how to be a senator? So could be what's stuck the disadvantage of having a bill up in a hurry? I mean, it would seem to me that if you had it there right away, could somebody try to block it at the beginning or? No, it's not even about doing it. And it's not about, look, the committees can, you know, the House passed the two gun bills that, you know, what, in like March of 2021, Chuck Schumer put them on the calendar the day after, I believe, or two days later, or maybe the 25th of the Texas shooting. Like what? That's over a year later. Why? Like what's going on? Why did it take them that long? If it gets stuck in committee, you know what you do? You just put your bill on the calendar anyway. You put your bill on the calendar and you let it go through committee. You can put two bills 
you can introduce a bill. If it's in committee, then you put another one on the calendar. You just have it there. It's not that you necessarily proceed to it. It's just leverage. It's just sitting there and you might need it. You may need to threaten to move to proceed to it. You may want to move to proceed to it. You may do a whole host of things, but at the very least, you just are prepared. And there's, how long have they been complaining about guns? You think that they would put a bill on the calendar to address guns that would be their ideal policy, but they don't even have that. So it's part of the problem that they don't necessarily have consensus among themselves. You, put something forward. You mean like into, I mean, are we going like existential? I mean, is this like Freud now? I mean, is this no, like, no. You know, is, I mean, is, is, is it's Chris political. Murphy divided between it's, like the no, good no, not, and not, the bad? No. Chris Murphy and he can't decide if he wants to introduce a bill. No, it's because that putting a bill up on the calendar then puts pressure on the entire Democratic caucus to support it to yeah. move forward. And right now, the caucus isn't necessarily that supportive of that issue. I mean, there are other issues as well which seem to divide the majority caucus. So if you're the majority leader, do you try not to put your members into a difficult position? Well, you know, and first of all, I have you away over here on the other side of my monitor, and it's like I'm looking over here, and you know, I don't know why. But no, look, the way you get consensus with individuals between parties is the same thing you do in parties, and you have leverage. You put a bill on the account. Look, Chris Murphy is, we all have a job to do. Chris Murphy is supposed to be like the guy who is like really righteous on guns for various and obvious reasons, right? He's from Connecticut. There was a Newtown massacre though. It was a terrible thing, right? It's in Sandy Hook. And so like you have this, you know, he's all about this issue. If he starts off by saying, I'm not gonna do anything until we have a consensus behind closed doors, I guarantee you that one, you're probably not gonna get consensus. And number two, if you do, it's gonna be so watered down and irrelevant that it is not going to matter. The, what the, the righteous people do is they mark out a righteous spot, they use that as leverage, and then they negotiate with others. And one way of doing that is to put a bill on the calendar that is a placeholder, that is a marker, that is a signal that says anything we do, we're going to judge it according to this. And then you work the outside game, and then you have activists, and they are going to compromise, but they have to have something to like refer back to, to know if they've gotten anything. And if you don't have that, you're just, you're just kind of doing nothing, which is exactly what the Senate's doing. So, so when did the Senate start that? When did they stop putting bills up on the calendar? Because I mean, this is, this is not a single issue. I mean, we've got the same issue with abortion. We've got the same issue with climate change. We've got the same issue with uh, taxes. I mean, name your favorite issue. There, there, there's not a whole lot of pressure on moving anything forward. It seems to, to me what you're saying is that this used to be the way that things were done. Yeah, I mean, this, like everybody did this. This is how it worked. It didn't. And so, when, what time frame? Over. When did that disappear? Well, like between 2008 ish and 2000 and say 15 ish, there's a big fight in both parties. There's a big fight in both parties, and both parties are deciding whether or not internally it's okay. It makes sense to act. It makes sense to like do things individually of your own accord to try to achieve your goals? Or is it make sense to not try to burn the place down, not try to do things and actually just wait for the party leaders and whoever they tap to come together and get a consensus? Conservatives and liberals were fighting against the parties on both sides uh, during this period and they lost. And coming out of 2015 into 2016 and 17, it is on both sides, it doesn't matter who's in control, it doesn't matter who's in the White House. The consensus kind of position within the parties is if you want to do something, if you want to win, if you want to change the world, if you want to make the world a better place, then don't try. I mean, it sounds well, bizarre, but that's literally what it well, is. And so here's the thing. you sit so, around and you wait. 
So, so here's the thing with this is, is I agree with you. Um, and, but well, of course I, you do, I, I'm right. I, I don't, I don't agree. I, I disagree <laughs> with you as well. So I agree and I disagree, but one of the things that, um, I, I, the second part of this podcast that I was going to do, I was just like, put the spoiler out there is, is why the Senate is doing a lot of stuff, right? It's been actually pretty productive in the early part of this year. And last year, it's got a bunch of stuff done from uh, Lend-Lease to Ukrainian aid to the Postal Service to uh, uh, Juneteenth to a variety of anti-lynching bill, the uh, uh, infrastructure, just there's done a, a bunch of stuff. Um, but your, your point daylight is- Daylight savings. Daylight savings, that's right. But, but your point is really accurate um, because uh, for a long time, it doesn't look like they're doing much of anything. I mean, it's just basically like what's happened is that the politics have moved somewhere else um, and they've been put in another person's hands and it's moved away from like an individual trying to accomplish policy goals to kind of delegating that responsibility to party leaders and allowing them to do it. Um, I just wrote a piece uh, that will be coming out in the newsletter, our newsletter in the next whenever those things come out um, about the budget. And, you know, you think about that, the budget died, the budget died in the last decade, somewhere in the last decade, the budget effectively is dead, right? It's not totally dead, but it's, it's mostly dead, right? The budget process, like literally just like 302 A's, like here's how much discretionary spending we're going to have. Um, and you can see that and like, oh yeah, it's dead or whatever. And like, you could point to like the usual suspects, right? And I mean, a lot of people be like, oh, well, it's polarization is partisanship. Well, it's, it's not, right? That polar partisanship and polarization should theoretically help a process like the budget, which is just majoritarian, right? And for the most unified uh, parties in American history, according to roll call votes, you would think that this would make it easier to pass a budget, not harder. But now we just don't do budgets anymore, right? We're just sort of like cast them aside, like, well, not going to do that. Now, like John Yarmouth is stuck in his office drinking bourbon, bourbon. Bernie Sanders is out in the Senate. He's doing is, you know, Barney Sanders stuff, right? And, and, but they're not doing anything as budget chairs. Like they're effectively not doing anything. Um, and instead, all of those decisions get kicked over to the leadership to negotiate. And now we have like this kind of like ad hoc group of appropriators sort of like lurking in the background, negotiating something and then out pops a, an omnibus bill or a budget deal or whatever it is. Um, and there's this odd sort of disconnect between the Senate actually doing a lot of stuff and then the Senate doing nothing at all, all at once. Um, and it seems just to be like a lack of individual, well, one, entrepreneurship, right? It just doesn't seem like individual entrepreneurs or policy entrepreneurs like work um, individually anymore, try to craft their own coalitions. They sort of just rely on others. They delegate it out, right? It's sort of become like a, well, I've been hired to do this job of representation and I've also hired congressional leaders to negotiate that for me, right? It's sort of a, I don't know. It's it's more like, it's almost like a delegate model of, of policymaking i mean i've been i'm thinking about a lot of what you said at first i mean i'm like Yarmouth and why is he talking about them i was like oh my god i forgot they were like that's how irrelevant they don't do anything i was Let's like go. why are you talking about these two people? yeah why are you it's talking so about random. john darmouth and bernie and i'm like oh there's the budget man, committee the budget that don't do anything that's right. yeah, yeah they're the, the chairs yeah. the committees yeah 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 sorry yeah it took me a second. I was like, wait a minute. And then it occurred to me. I was like, oh, yeah, they're budget committees. They have one that. job and they don't do it. I mean, they don't even try to do it. They just. Yeah, this is, we're told, you know, pol we're, uh, polarization, polarization, polarization. We have like DW nominate scores. We got like all, you know, ah, and it's like, well, okay, but that's like everything in reality says that's not what's happening, right? There's like, you're right, polarization, unified parties, polarization induces people to act, partisanship induces people to act. It like team play induces people, especially even in a majoritarian process, 
it induces people to act in the early 1980s, even in a super majoritarian process. In the early 1980s, you have Senate Democrats forcing votes left and right because of this dynamic that Francis Lee writes about in the 1980s is, is like, you know, this partisan team play because they want to make the other side look bad. Right. But then we're told that's also happening today. But it's like, well, but then why, why is no one trying to make anybody look bad? Well, they, right? they are trying to do that, right? But I mean, not they just be... like they just like talk about each other. Well, it's like, well, Schumer, like Schumer's gonna second grade put you up... know, bullies, like just like kind of like talking about each other, but too scared to like go in there and throw a punch. But in reality, you got to go to the floor and you got to force votes and you got to put people on the record. If I hear another Democrat talk about how we are going to put people on the record on guns, well, where have you been? Yeah, where right. have you been? Where have so, you been? 2015 was the last time. I mean, give me a break that we get like, you know, like how many shootings have we had? Like, if you want gun policy to pass, you have to actually try to pass gun policy. And if you're sitting around waiting for people who don't agree with you to come up and all of a sudden say, oh, now we agree, then you know what? You're never going to do it, which is precisely why it's never happened. Look, Civil Rights Act of 1964, if they adopted this approach, it would, we'd still be sitting around waiting for Richard Russell and the Southern segregationists and to come to the table and say, you know, we agree, guys. We 100% agree. No, we'd still be waiting. You have to get up in the morning. You got to go to work. You got to like get in the ring. You got to like slog it out and you got to keep trying and you're going to lose and you're going to lose and you're going to lose. And then one day you might win. And when you do win, you're only going to win 10% and it's going to be awesome. It's going to be a huge victory, but you have to you have to lean into it and you have to lose before you win. And we sit around and we wait for this magical moment when everybody's just going to wake up and it's going to be like a nirvana and we're going to have a consensus. Well, you know what? If there's a consensus that you can reach on controversial issues behind closed doors, you do not need the Senate. You don't need the Senate. Society can take care of it. It's the stuff that you disagree on. It's the non-negotiable stuff that you have to have Congress for. That's the stuff you do. And I'm sorry, you know, and I want to challenge your point about them working. You don't get credit for passing an infrastructure bill. They all want to pass an infrastructure bill. You don't get credit for that. You don't get credit for postal stuff. You don't get credit. What when postal we want to understand now. Congress, when we want to understand Congress and we want to understand how it operates and why it's dysfunctional, we have to look at the most controversial stuff. That's what we do throughout history. Nobody goes back to 1822 and says, hey, this bill that had 99 votes or not, obviously not 99 because there weren't that many states, but like had a lot of votes. Like it was only like one person voted against it. We don't study that. You know why? Because it's boring and it doesn't tell us anything. What do we study? You know, we study the stuff that is like really intense, that divides North and South, that, that puts and pits people against each other, because those debates reveal to us a little bit about the institution. If we have a sense of the Senate that says we all love America, that is about the most irrelevant thing that I've ever seen. And I'm not going to spend any time trying to figure out why people voted for it, because of course they voted for it. Well, I, I so, mean, but I think that's like we got to we have to look at the stuff that's really controversial, the major stuff, the stuff that they disagree on, because Congress is a place where people disagree, fight and compromise. That's why we have Congress. And ultimately, those are the things that we need to focus on. Well, I, I sort of disagree with that a lot of it. I think I think I, I, and by sort of I mean, I do. I, I, I agree the controversial stuff matters. But if we're going to like but this is one of the problems that I have with only studying the controversial stuff or only studying it, the, the things that can't get done, is that when you look at things like that, Congress does a lot of really good work 
on stuff that never gets done, right? And it's exactly the things that you're talking about, things that Congress can't legislate on. And, and it's, it's difficult because it's just flat out difficult to legislate on it. It's very difficult to solve immigration. That's just a- But we don't, uh, they're not a factor. Right, 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 right. But, but we don't it's, applaud it's, them. We don't just, applaud Ford for building just a, Oldsmobiles a, or whatever, because that's their job. They just do no, it. And no, we no, expect no. it. Congress well, I mean, isn't a factory. It's a place where they come together and they argue. It's a venue in which actors represent other people. And then the outcomes of the compromises are things that happen. Like, but here's the thing. Here's the thing. You also have to judge it by other things, right? It can't just be the controversial stuff. Because if you look across American history, Congress is always judged by the controversial stuff. And the conclusion across American history is that it's an institution that stinks. It never keeps up with any social demands. It always fails. It has always been failing. And there has never, at one point in time, ever in its history, been a good Congress. If you uh, look at any, if you look just, at that, no, 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 from James McGregor Burns to Norm Ornstein to well, Woodrow Wilson to, I mean, you go back in American history there to, 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 to Walt Whitman. I mean, it just never stops. Well, Mark all those people see it as a factory. They all see it as a factory. Of course they don't. No, John no. C. Calhoun, hold on, is, on his deathbed. This is the point. This is the point. This is the point. No, is the point. I, you got to wait. You got to wait. Hold on. Wait. Let Josh get his point in. So you cannot judge Congress just by its controversial things because it can't solve every controversial issue. Not every issue is politically solvable, but it still does a whole lot of stuff. And I don't care that like a lot of people agreed with Len Lease and it seems it just kind of flew through Congress. That is a major, major policy decision, right? A major policy decision, one that we haven't invoked since World War II. Like massive Ukrainian aid, that's a major policy decision. Maybe people don't get credit for the Postal Service, but the oldest American institution in government was going bankrupt and was, it's a, it's a huge issue. It's a major issue. And just because it wasn't politically controversial does not mean that we should not give Congress credit for making those decisions, right? Because there was a, there was a lot of buildup. Like they couldn't make those decisions the last 10, 12, 15 years. Because the then Postal Service was bang. pretty controversial for a while. Yeah, Still and is. all of a sudden, bang, they made a decision. Mm. They were able to come up to us for a solution and compromise. And that's a big deal, right? And just because it's not like immigration or one of the major controversial issues of the day does not mean it is not also important in, in a way that we are going to judge and analyze the institution. Dr. Walner, so, your rebuttal. These things that happen aren't happening in Congress. That's the point. Yeah, they're kind of rubber stamped in the House and Senate floors. But they're not, it's a different view. So John C. Calhoun on his deathbed is like, if I had one breath left, if I had one good day left, I would go to the Senate because what great things I could do there, right? Like it's 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 about a like no one thinks that anymore. No one thinks that. Like no one's like, oh my God, if I had one day left, I'm gonna go to the United States Senate. Like, no, they're like, that's a waste of time. Why? Because nothing important happens there. And when I think about Congress, I don't. I don't think about outcomes. Outcomes are not, as in it, when we're evaluating the institution, and I think there are plenty of periods in American history when Congress has been incredible and the Senate has been incredible. The 1960s and 70s, the, America's literally on fire. Like the CIA is killing people. We got people dying. We got bombs going off. We got people protesting in the street. We have segregation in half the country. We have segregation in the North and residential stuff. We got all, it's a really bad time. Everybody's unhappy. And the Congress and the Senate has one of the most legislative productivity, like one of the most legislatively productive periods in its history. The late 19th century, the same thing prior to the Civil War, the same thing. It doesn't mean that everybody loves what they're doing. I don't think we should say what is the, what comes off the assembly line is it the way to judge Congress. The way to judge Congress is to say, is it a venue, a crucible of conflict where we engage 
in the act of self-government. Self-government is an adverbial exercise. It is not about one plus one equals two. Self-government is about the act of adding it up. That's what self-government's all about. And when and that's where Congress has failed. So yeah, I don't think you get credit for an infrastructure bill because that doesn't challenge the the um it doesn't challenge the ability of today's congress to be a venue for self-government why because they all agree and to the extent that they don't they're resolving it behind closed doors somewhere they, in the basement of the they Capitol. did not all agree they were nowhere close to all agreeing they got 10 republican votes in the house of representatives 10 or 12 yeah, whatever I, it was I, I, yeah a lot more of them agree it's just like you have this process and they can all vote no but then it's like i want to see something where like you know why do we talk about the civil rights act why don't we talk about the civil rights act? Because it's unclear that it passes. We don't know the outcome and you can't figure it out until you try. You engage in this big debate. The debate itself, it makes other people aware of what's going on. More people get involved. And then in the end, which incidentally isn't a presidential election year, by the way, you get an outcome. And that outcome is something that wasn't as great as what they went starting into the debate with. No, it's not. But is it a big, major, marquee piece of legislation? Yes. And if we think back to every single piece of legislation that we can think of in American history, even if it passes like 90 to nothing, it's not a question of like, is it, it's about the activity that goes into passing it. And so, if, and like, that's so what I think the Congress has broken. Okay. So was one of the last times maybe that it worked during the Affordable Care Act? Mm -hmm. I honestly believe in this. Okay, when I was a staffer, I fought against this thing like crazy. And you know how I, I woke up every day saying, okay, I don't like a bill. I'm going to have to figure out how to stop it. I have to stop the process because that's how you stop bills that are really intense and controversial, right? So today, that's literally what the leaders do. They do my, like, the job for me. If you took the, steering, the Senate Steering Committee, which is the caucus of uh, conservative senators, and you took every executive director that has served at, on the Senate Steering Committee, and you compared their records, the current executive director, who's a good friend of mine, would be like by far the most successful ever. Why? Because Mitch McConnell and Chuck Schumer literally do his job for him. They stop everything. We had to hustle. And we would in the Affordable Care Act was one of those periods and it was still managed. It wasn't as free flowing as, you know, I don't want to suggest that, but it was un when Scott Brown wins the special election right. in Massachusetts, everybody thought it was dead. Everybody thought it was dead. No one in America thought that bill was passing. Like I don't And then Harry Reid and Nancy Pelosi and an extraordinary feat of leadership, like, like achieve victory and they snatch it out of the jaws of defeat. Today, we're like, oh, well, there's a reason why Chris Murphy literally hasn't lifted a finger to do anything on guns on the Senate floor since 2015. Well, because he's going to lose. Well, I mean, if we had that mentality, then the Affordable Care Act wouldn't be the law of the land. The Civil Rights Act of 64 wouldn't be the law of the land. They would never have deregulated the airlines. I mean, you can just go on through immigration reform of 86. Like, I mean, you just pick a, pick a bill. We had the, you know, I mean, this is the, you have to try and then that's how big things happen maybe they don't happen but they might happen that's the it's not a question of the outcome we got to get we got to reject the outcome-based reasoning when it comes to congress because congress isn't about outcomes it's about activity it's about participating in an activity the outcome is the dessert it is the it's the icing on the cake so let me, let me posit this so is it reasonable to consider that in the past senators tended to have to represent a pretty diverse group of people and that as we've gotten further along, states we have, as, as Josh and I talked about, I mean, we've self-sorted in such a way that senators can take positions that don't have to worry about trying to 
mollify the the middle anymore. They're they're really more having to mollify one side or the other, and that's really kind of fundamentally different than what we've done in the past. Well, I I mean I reject the the whole like middle and left and right thing because I don't think it's accurate. I don't think it's accurate. Number one, um, the idea that there's no Democrat to the right of a Republican. Well, that's like it just depends on the issue. And I mean, I can think of like Pat Toomey's to the right. Uh, I mean, to the left of a lot of Democrats on a lot of issues. Right. I mean, there's and it doesn't make him like a liberal. It's just that he's individual. Just, just so I understand where you're coming from. Can you name uh, me two? Uh, yeah. I mean, Pat Toomey, if you actually took Pat Toomey on immigration, for instance, he would be to the left on a lot of it. I mean, his private views on immigration are a are going to be closer to a lot i mean they're gonna let me put it this way you have like say issues like tax reform there are democrats that agree with pat Toomey on tax reform there are democrats that disagree with pat Toomey on tax reform there are republicans who disagree with pat Toomey on tax reform mike lee and pat Toomey don't agree on tax reform pat Toomey and jeff sessions don't agree on immigration uh, you know, I would assume that like a mansion and a Toomey, if you really went down to it and looked at on a, a, an issue like immigration or say big banks, for instance, they're going to be on uh, Pat's going to be in a different place. And they're going to be other Democrats, like say a Chris Coons, that's going to agree with Pat, but not with Manchin. But we're told all the time by the DW nominate crowd that, oh, well, it's just that there's no Republican to the left of a Democrat. And that's the problem. No, the problem is I don't care. If we were so self-sorted and everybody was so safe, then why is anybody doing anything? Why? I mean, what's the cost of doing something? The problem is what, what makes Civil Rights Act of 64 happen is that after 1958, you get senators who are coming to the Senate from the North who have to act. Their constituents want them to do stuff. They're polarizing. They are polarized. Polarization always fuels action throughout American history. It always does it, at least institutional reform. And now all of a sudden we're told everybody agrees. We're all self-sorted. We all agree. There's no downside to like, uh, you know, not being, you know, appeasing the middle and just sticking with your core. But then like they literally can't do anything. That doesn't, it's nonsense. It doesn't make sense. Here's the thing. um, You're, you're, you're defining action and self-governance in a very particular way. And it's very public, right? And in particular, procedurally public. Right, things have to happen on the floor. There have to be disagreements on the floor. There has to be lively debate. There have to be amendments. There have to be exchanges, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and the reality is, like, there are all of these things that are happening. Um, it's just that they're no longer happening one in public and on the floor. Right, they're happening behind closed doors, and the exchanges are sort of and and two, they're being the exchanges are being sorted through a very particular set of actors, and those are p- political leaders. Um, and basically, what's happened is that there's the Senate is still doing things. The House and Congress are still doing things. This is a fairly productive Congress, all things considered. Um, but the members have chosen to go about that politics, their politics, and their productivity by giving it to leaders, putting it behind closed doors, and then presenting an alternative. And that's a very different style of politics, essentially. Because uh, rabble-rousing, liberal, conservative, homogeneous, uh, blue red states definitely don't want to see their senators doing things. No, it's not an either or. Look, privately, like things are always going to happen behind closed doors. The question is, how do you win behind closed doors? Right. So let's take the 2013 government shutdown. Right. We like you're going to negotiate behind closed doors. Of course you are. That's always happened. That happened in 64. The Civil Rights Act. It always happens. 
But you know how you get a better deal out of those negotiations? You have a letter that says that I'm not going to vote to fund Obamacare. And then you create a website and you create a citizen's petition. Then you get every conservative group to get behind that letter. And then you get and you start getting members to sign it. And then you start getting groups to go after members who don't sign it. And you make it politically untenable for them to be able to adopt positions behind closed doors that are counter to their public positions. And then you go behind closed doors and you start to negotiate. And when you then get leverage and you make it where it's literally impossible for people behind closed doors to cut certain deals, then all of a sudden you may not get a deal. And we didn't then, but you may also get a deal. Like that's the way it works. What's remarkable to me is that we are told that our parties are in the Senate are so much more unified and the members are so much more sure of everything and they're so much more aligned with their constituents. But yet now all of a sudden they've decided that they're going to do everything behind closed doors and they're not going to engage in any of the things that we have been doing since the beginning of time in terms of politics and leverage. Yes, I'm talking about public acts, but public acts and private acts go hand in hand. And what's remarkable to me is that we completely abandoned the public at precisely the time where there's literally no, our, like, like the current conventional wisdom says there is no downside to public action. None. Well, like we're all in it, like so, the, there's like polarization, there's no downside to public action. And yet now is the time that we've completely abandoned public action. And also when we've done that, you know what, nothing happens anymore. Why? Because they don't have any leverage. They can't cut a deal on guns behind closed doors. It doesn't work. You got to have some public action too to leverage in those negotiations. And then you, and Barbara Sinclair has told us this, you, the Senate has since like forever punts controversial issues to the floor. They've always done that. Like what now all of a sudden we've decided that we're not going to do that anymore. Why? Well, this is making sense to me. This is a byproduct. Well, I, I don't believe that they've given up on the public sphere at all. Right. I think more than ever, members of Congress have access to the public in ways that they never have before. Right. They've got Twitter. They've got YouTube. They've got direct access to their constituents. They've got emails. They've, I mean, they're, they're arguably members are more public today than they've ever been. But as long as they don't have action that they can be but, held accountable for. But they're they're not using that in a, in a procedural or, or legislative sense. Right. Um, so their public activities have changed dramatically and they don't seem to be too interested in legislating through public. They're legislators. They're, that's literally their job. What do you think? I know, but not every legislator needs to legislate. Right? Okay. So, so, but, so it's been what approximately 50 years since we've had any institutional change, real institutional fundamental change in the way that the activities are done. I mean, when was the last time that the Senate rules were actually changed? I and don't try that, to talk to me about filibuster on judges because that's not a rules change. No, I think the change that we have seen inside the Senate from 2008-ish, 2006-ish to today is the most dramatic, fundamental, far-reaching institutional change this institution has ever seen. It is, it is astonishing to me how like just dramatically different the place is. And, you know, they don't need to change the rules anymore because they don't care about the rules. The rules right. only matter when you are using them to do things. The rules aren't constraints, they're leverage. They give, they empower members. Rules help members do things. They don't care about that anymore, which is why the Senate doesn't, yeah, you, if you can get an agreement without having, you know, there can be disagreement, sure. But when you can't when when there's no issue that is like so controversial that you basically have to just like somebody's got to have a vote and then they lose 
and then their constituents get mad at them and they're put in a tough spot and then they feel like they have no choice but to agree. Well, that doesn't happen anymore. You know why, you know, things that they disagree on, yeah, they still disagree, but they, they pass those things because they don't care that much. Yeah, I don't like that, but do I care enough to go and actually use the leverage I have to try to stop it? Like, you know, I have a postal service. Well, yeah, I'm like, you know, whatever. Well, but I, mean, I mean, think about you. I don't Ukraine. like it, but I'm not going to try. I mean, Len Lease got held up, right? I mean, Rand Paul held up Len Lease. I mean, Rand Paul, up. like, you one person, how long you one person hold something up? They roll Rand Paul left and right whenever they want to. Like, my point is, like, you beat your chest, you have all this rhetoric, but you don't actually, because it's like hard work. Like, and, and then you have to ask yourself, well, do you, I mean, how, how much do you oppose it? If you're not willing to, I mean, look, say what you will about, you know, I'm not defending the segregationists, but like they like really went all in and tried to stop civil rights, like, like all in. When was the last time we saw something like that? I mean, it's that's the I think the marker, because when the opposition isn't doing that, it's one of two things. One, they don't care. Or two, the other side's not trying to do it's not something. forcing them. Yeah, it, it hasn't I mean, it's forced. like in it neither side's doing it. So I think it's partly they don't care. And I think it's partly like they're not. I mean, if you can't is a, you know, a, a baby that can't walk could pass a gun bill right now. They could have done it in 2015. You could have done it. And I don't know if it's assault weapons, ban, but you can pass a gun bill. I don't know what it looks like. But you can pass a gun bill. But why doesn't it pass? Because well, that is the fundamental problem, right? Don't know how they to can legislate, pass a gun or bill, they don't care. But I don't know what it looks like. I mean, that's the, the critical element, right? I don't this know. This is a like. I mean, we, nobody's in charge. You know, King George isn't here. You can't know what something looks like. Like that's the whole point of self-government. There's nobody in so, control. So well, your point is that the being able to pass a gun bill should be done basically through amendment on the Senate floor rather than the way that they're trying to do it right now with Chris Murphy trying to work with people in the gang method, which is basically what the Senate's been doing since 2008, right? I mean, we get a gang of name your favorite number, and then they come together, Republicans and Democrats together, and that's what forces an issue to move forward. I mean, you can have a gang. Look, I was taught that gangs were bad, incidentally. Like, growing up, like, in school, like, gangs are bad. They're gang and you see these movies, and, like, gangs are bad in movies, gangs are bad. They're bad everywhere, but on Capitol Hill, apparently. Um, you know, look, it's not a question of, is the bill written by a gang? It's not a question of, is the bill written on the floor? You can put a bill on the floor and you can defeat every single amendment. This is what appropriators used to do. They used to table amendments left and right on the floor. It's not a question of things passing. It's a question of, are you like, they want to write a bill on a controversial subject that Americans are deeply divided on. Then they don't want anybody to offer any amendments. They don't want anybody to have any votes. And they want everybody to just agree to it. And then they want the people who don't agree to it to just say, no, I'm going to vote no, but I'm not really going to try to stop it. That's not a realistic way of like, let, that, that, that doesn't, that's like a so, unicorn. That's never well, I, want to I want to disagree with one of your premises there is that you said you could put a bill on the floor. I don't think that's been happening, right? Schumer attempts to put a bill on the floor and you can't get a motion to proceed. So I mean, even if he gives, even if he give amendment votes, I can't guarantee you're well, going to you don't have the, the votes, last you don't time, have the votes. The last time I remember a bill going on the Senate floor with that got a motion to proceed, but then failed was minimum wage. There's a bill that was, um, remember the, it was like an insurance bill that read, it, he, what was that bill? Minimum wage. Right, I remember though. like Kirk. Because Kirk was most... one of the guys who voted to go ahead and proceed, but voted against the bill. Or and actually then, and voted get for the filibuster not to allow a final vote to occur. And one of the things, though, is that when you have a process that you don't get to buy into and, and you don't get to offer things and you can't hide behind things, 
when you just shut the floor down, then yeah, you're gonna get more of that. And the reason why bills always pass is because it's really hard. This is why I try to stop the process. It's really hard to to like refuse to allow a bill to go to a final vote when you've had an opportunity to do whatever it is you wanted and you lost. They're humans. They don't like people don't like doing that. It's a schmucky thing to do. And so you're right. I mean, bills generally are going to pass in some form when they're put on the floor. If there is this open process, there are some weird examples uh, because of filled trees or say like a timeline, like a reconciliation bill, those types of things, um, you know, but it's, it's not about, you can like, you move to proceed to a bill. The Senate had no way of ending a filibuster until 1917. But yet the Senate still did a lot of really big stuff that was controversial and they did it on narrow majority votes. Why and how? Like today we're told that can't happen. But literally that happened for over half the Senate's history. And so the question is, well, why and how? And you're like, oh, okay. Well, there are actual rules in place that make it hard and then to like filibuster. And filibustering is a physical activity. And so you have to say, well, a motion to proceed you, that's just a motion to proceed. You can't amend it. You can't do anything. And then you have rule 19, which is a two speech rule. And you could easily, I mean, I guarantee you if Schumer wanted to put a gun bill on the floor and he's like, and he said, we're, I'm going to make this motion to proceed. I'm not filing closure. We're going to debate this bill and we're going to stay in session and we're not going to leave session and for the rest of the year until we get on this bill. If he has a majority of the Senate to vote for it, he's going to win. If he doesn't, he's going to lose, but he's not going to lose to a filibuster. That's no way that it's going to happen. Well, and, one thing but, but he doesn't do that. And I think because it's hard to control that process, you can't control it. You don't know where it's going to go. You're basically creating a monster. But the Senate's not meant to be controlled. The Senate is a place where we govern ourselves. It's not like King George's bedchamber. It's not like we're just like you. I mean, like it's absurd to think that we're not going to do anything in the Senate until we know definitively what's going to happen before we start. Like that's that's ridiculous. Of course, that's not going to be the way it works. Well, that's the way it works, right? right well, that, that, that's why that's it doesn't exactly work. The way it works but that's right literally why it doesn't do but, anything. But, but it has been doing things, and I can I mean, say that. It's like been the doing things that we but, don't care about. So, so here's the thing, and, and to your point, like the only reason, the only way that that uh, Schumer would allow a vote on to get, to proceed to like the two vote, the two speech rule, and to pursue that strategy um, was if they basically gave him special authorities right so when they tried to do this on voting rights in january um it the ultimate process that came out of that was basically like a majority vote to give him a special rule that was just unlimited debate right with no amendments just unlimited debate and basically if you were doing that you were putting in place a special rule in the senate that had no debate cap um but nonetheless uh and that tells you everything, though. Just, they're not afraid of debate. But that's, they're not that's, afraid of debate. They're, we're told, like, oh, my God, we're going to have a filibuster. But then when they're given an opportunity to write a rule for how they would, in a perfect world, make this work, what do they do? They said, you know, you can debate this as long as you want. You just can't do anything. You can't offer any amendments. You can't vote. And then we're, like, scratching our head going, oh, my God, the filibuster. They're afraid of people debating. They're afraid of the time it'll take. And it's like, no, they're afraid of what senators will the votes. Yeah. It's not. It's not. The filibuster isn't. It's not a threat. It's not a threat. Uh, Robert Byrd gives a speech where he's like, we broke the back of the 77 natural gas filibuster in like the back, neck and legs. He even goes, you know, he like breaks a leg on his, you know, in his hands on the Senate floor. Like, there's a reason why you can't filibuster things throughout history up until now. Now it's like, oh God, I'm just going to yawn and say I'm going to filibuster something in my dreams. And it's going to be like the whole Senate's going to just come to a screeching halt. 
That's absurd. That proposal that you just mentioned demonstrates very clearly that they do not care about the filibuster. What they care about is senators being senators. I, Offering no, I mean, amendments and that's votes. Part of that's being the filibuster. But I think... But I yeah, said you could have unlimited debate. That, that have is, unlimited it's, debate. It's, but can, you know why? Because nobody's going to debate forever. They're not going to. They can't even be there on a Friday. No, they're not going to debate forever. No, they're not going to debate. But those are the terms in which the majority leader was willing to put forward. Like we can have this two-speech thing if you promise that it won't be dragged out and we won't have any amendments, we won't have any of these other motions or anything like that. Um, and it's basically it's a, it's an admission to what he believes he can do. Um, which is not much, right? He can't, he can't control the process. He can't guarantee that he'll have the votes in order to pass, to pursue something to passage. Um, and that's an effort problem. That's a lot of different problems. Um, at the same time, like in a lot of ways, this sort of process where you negotiate behind closed doors and then present it is one of the only ways that Congress has been successful. I mean, and you admitted that when you talked about the ACA thing, right? Um, that when it, it was defeated, Scott Brown was elected in, the, in Massachusetts. And then all of a sudden, um, Nancy Pelosi and Chuck Schumer grasped the bill out of the jaws of defeat, put it on the floor and enabled it to, or Harry Reid, I should not Chuck Schumer, and Nancy Pelosi uh, grasped the bill out of the jaws of defeat and put it on the floor and then win. Um, I, there's something to this where uh, at the one point, uh, the Senate's doing a lot and it's doing a lot in a very weird way where it doesn't appear that it's doing a lot. Um, but on the big issues, you don't see much activity, right? And to your point, like there aren't bills on the floor. They're not debating. They're not offering amendments and stuff. Um, Mark's on mute and he's trying to talk. Okay, now I'm not. Um, there hasn't been an appropriations bill on the floor in over two or three years. Um, I mean, that, that just goes to the fact that, that to, to James's point, that the, the majority leader has been very unwilling to allow legislation to come to the floor in an environment where anything can be brought forward um, and to lose control um, and to take that chance. Um, and that's frustrating because it does limit the member, the senator's abilities to put their influence on legislation. And it does build up this animosity towards trying to move something forward without at least being heard. Um, and so th then the question kind of comes back around to, I mean, at one point you kind of slipped this in that does there need to be some sort of procedural change? I mean, do we need to go back to a talking filibuster? But you don't need a procedural. I mean, you can just do it. Like that, like what I don't understand, like you can just, like they don't need a rules change for that. They got I didn't it. didn't say just, a rules change. No, I know. But, but my point, like you don't have to use cloture. We know that the Senate operated very successfully on a majoritarian basis for over a hundred plus years without any way to end the filibuster. Yeah, and, but, but nobody knew what they were doing at the time. Now we oh. know what they're doing five seconds later. And so you get this incredible feedback loop from the general public, which I think makes senators a little less likely to try to be willing to move forward but if but then we're told that we have it took a week before anybody who cared knew what was going on much less the well, but then we're told but then we're told that you know and look that dynamic was i mean look there's a reason why nelson aldrich didn't come back to the senate after popular uh, election of senators happens and you know he's filibustering the fda bill like i mean th that dynamic's still there i think what's interesting today is that we are told that we are told that senators are representing very red and blue states, that everybody agrees, that they're polarized, but then we're simultaneously like they're not, they're just scared. They don't know, they don't want to do something because the feedback loop. And it's like, so they don't do anything. And it's like, well, 
you know, if I represent a rock rib, uh, you know, rib conservative or liberal state, and I have some issue that people ostensibly all of my voters all care about, then why am I not? It would help me raise money to go down and just right. do but, things. It would help me get reelected to go. But it's down unlikely and do that anybody from the blue side is going to be supportive of what you're doing since you're from a rock red. I mean, you're worried more from somebody running at you from the red side. Than from the blue Which side, is exactly right? why I would be going to the floor and doing some crazy conservative stuff so no one could challenge me from the right. I would, if I came from a very conservative state, I would be doing all kinds of crazy stuff because I would get lots of money. I would use, like Ron Paul used and, to do money bombs and Jim DeMitt used to do action on the floor and then he would turn around and then do a fundraiser and he would get on the internet and do small dollar donations and he would get lots of money. And, and so remind told me what agrees. legislation Paul and DeMitt are famously known for having well, gotten through? They're doing something. It's not a question about what's getting through. You can't get anything through if nobody's doing anything. And right now we have a situation where we're told that everybody is basically Jement and Paul because they represent these very homogeneous districts and states. And we're told that they are the, you know, that there's no reason for them to compromise. But then we're like, and we're also told that if you do really aggressive stuff and you take extreme stances and you get you win primary votes and you get money, and then like nobody's doing any of that and it's like well why and you're like oh well, and people are saying well because they you know the 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 with the work the news today everybody will know right away and it's like well but that but they all yeah, agree but, with you but because they you're a conservative back. state step back step back yeah. neither of the leadership groups wants to push their party so far to one side or the other that regardless of whether you like it or not they lose that middle because they're going to lose that majority right so there's no advantage about the leadership. to allow progressives about... to come on and really be that blue person and hurt Cinema and Mansion and lose those seats. There's no reason to allow the Republicans to come on and to be very strong on the right with the chances of losing a Collins or a Murkowski, right? Well, I'm not talking about what McConnell and Schumer do. I'm talking about what these like these senators who represent these very blue and red states do. Like, why do they care? Like if uh, we're told that all they care about is re-election, we're told all they care yeah, they about care is about the their gavels. They care about the gavels. Well, they care about the being able we to. We to... don't even know who. I forgot the budget committee existed. Like well, come that, on, that's, that's, the, that's, that's the budget control act that that played yeah, into that. Like, I mean, the guy, that, I agree for with ten you, years, but... hang on. For ten years, we had statutory limits on what the three hundred two A's were. I mean, that's there's a reason why the budget committee disappeared. I'm sorry, that was statutory. If, if like Republicans control the energy and natural resources gavel next year, you know what? I, I, what is it? I mean, in 2000 years, is, can it, can somebody tell me in a in 50 years, can somebody tell me who that could matter a hell of a lot in Alaska? Only if they're doing stuff, only if they're doing stuff. Yeah. But they're not doing anything. They're not doing anything. They're doing stuff. They're, they're All right. They're so, doing. so what do we change to make it work? And don't tell me we just allow people to add third degree amendments. Just, I don't know. We just need senators that want to be senators. That's all. That's all you need. And then maybe it's third degree minutes, maybe it's gavels, maybe it's actually using your position as a chairman or chairwoman to do something big or try to do something big. Like I just, I will take any, I don't even care if they're conservative or it doesn't bother me, whatever. Like I just, I would take any individual who comes to the Senate and says, this is the place where I am going to engage in this activity and I'm going to try to win today. And then and when they do that, what's going to happen is like overnight, it'll change. And it'll you change see a them. leader on other either side who's willing to allow that type of activity to occur. But they cannot disallow it. They can't disallow it. It's they they it's it's not. What makes McConnell so good is that he can create an environment 
the social environment, that it's really costly for individuals to do that. It's like peer pressure in high school, right? And so if you want a leader in this environment, you need like a dumb leader, someone who can't do what McConnell can do, which is like create this, I mean, he's so good at it, uh, the Byzantine kind of politics. But ultimately it's not McConnell, like McConnell has zero power over these rank and file members. They could just ignore them. You could stop going to the lunches. You could stop going to these, uh, you know, back in the day, like Lyndon Johnson would never get all the senators together. Why? Because that was like not a good idea because you had a bunch of senators who did stuff and they're like, the last thing I want to do is get them all together. Right. And now it's the inverse. Now they all get together and that's the mechanism by which the party controls them because of the social peer pressure. Like what, Say you're a senator and you're just like, I'm not going to any party lunches anymore. I don't care. Like I'm like, I'm from like Alabama. Who what do I care? Whether they can be like, you didn't go to the party lunch today. Half people in Alabama don't like the party because they think it's a bunch of rhinos. And so you just don't go. And then you just go to the floor and you just start doing stuff and you just offer an amendment. And then like, yeah, maybe you lose 99 to one. So what if everybody in your state loves it? And then you get like, oh, I'm a champion. And then like, you just keep doing that. And then other people are going to start to mimic you and they're going to start behaving like that. And then before you know it, it's going to be like, they're going to just be legislative. Okay. Like that's how it works. So eventually go from 99 to one to 51 to 49. I don't know. The vote outcome is less important to me than the fact that there are votes. Like that's the problem. We're not building Oldsmobiles. We're not building automobiles. We're not building furniture. We don't have a blueprint that we are then coming and assembling in the Senate. That's not, yes, there are things that I would like to see done. There are policies that I would like to see passed, but like what makes the Senate so extraordinary and unique and the same with the House is that they are places where a bunch of equals come together and govern themselves on behalf of others. Like that's the whole point. It's the activity, not the outcome. And we've forgotten that. And we have, we adopt this kind of view of like, and it's on all sides, left and right. It's like, we need this outcome, this, this like, and it's a very kind of like, and I don't mean to be like very provocative, but you know, I guess I will, because that's just me, but like, it's Why like a very, now, right? it's a very Marxist way of looking at things. It's a very outcome production oriented type kind of thing. Like the end is what matters. And anything that goes into it that gets me that end is the good thing. Well, guess what? Congress doesn't work like that, which is precisely why it doesn't work right now. It doesn't work. We can't do things. Look, and again, like way to go for the postal service. I actually love the mail. I, I, I just, I wait for the mailman every day. Like I just, I, I just love getting the mail. It never fails. But like, Makes me want you know, to wag my tail. Sorry. But you know, it, it like, or like, or like infrastructure since like what 18, like when Madison vetoes the for the public works bill that Calhoun sponsored, you know, like it hasn't really been an issue. And, you know, yes, that mean, it doesn't mean it's not controversial. You know, we have farm bills and like you get like some peanut growers want this kind of program and other peanut growers want this kind of program. Of course, yeah, that matters. But like, it's not what Congress is. In, Congress is a place where we have tragedies like shootings and then we come together and we debate what we're going to do. Congress is a place where we deal with, okay, we have threats like say the Nazis and it's like, and we, how are we going to start to slowly try to prepare for that in a way that gets ahead of the public, but yet puts us in a better place like Lynn Lease. The Lynn Lease of the 30s is a hell of a lot more important to me than the one now because it's like a much bigger issue. And it's like the public is being led by a Congress and by an administration that's trying to position ourselves so that when the inevitable does happen, that we are prepared. And I think that, that is a different environment. It's like they're all going to work every day because they think it's important. 
they think, yeah, they think it's important today, but it's important because like, if I go to work, that means that somebody else isn't going to work that disagrees with me in my seat. And so I'm stopping something by virtue of just being here. Like that's the kind of mentality they have today. And that's just not, that's just not it. I mean, Congress isn't worth that. It's too damn expensive. And it's like, that's not, if the only reason Congress matters is because the other people aren't in charge, then we should just kind of hang it up. You know, that's not the point. The point is it matters because that's where important stuff happens, whether you like it or not. And it happens because people wake up in the morning, put their feet on the ground, they look in the mirror and they say, I'm going to be a senator today. Nobody says that anymore. You're, you're on your deathbed. Nobody goes, you know, Calhoun gets out of his deathbed and goes across the street to get listen to Webster. Webster comes and sees him and they, he's like, I'm going to give a speech and I'm going to attack you. I'm going to, I'm going to say bad things about you. And I want you there. And Calhoun's like, I can't make it. I'm dying. And then what does he do? He like goes and like stumbles in and he's like, I'm here. You know, and he listens and he's like, you know, I mean, it's like, yeah. You know, and Calhoun's a pallbearer for John Quincy Adams. John Quincy Adams and John C. Calhoun, they don't like each other, but they respect each other. Why? Because they are engaged in an activity that is sacred, which is self-government. And we don't think like that anymore. Right? I mean, like, yeah, I mean, I, I don't know. I just... I love the place, but it just it seems completely irrelevant today. Love the place, but not necessarily the players. Yeah. No, I love the players, too. I honestly believe that they are doing, they are sincere individuals. I do not, I don't begrudge them. I, I think that they, I just think they're wrong about how they think they can win. But I do think that they're sincere. I do think they believe deeply. I mean, look, the amount of crap they have to put up with for little juice that they ultimately have when they get there and they just sit around at lunch and wait to be told what to do i mean you know how hard you have to work to be a senator today it's like really hard but in they just go to lunch and they're just like what am i going to do today mitch like i mean that's just brutal like i think they need more respect but they need to also kind of remember what it's like to to win and try you know you gotta like you gotta winners want the ball it's a different style like, lawmaking today for what, sure. what was that movie like what was it like you know any given sunday or something it's like you know winners want the ball they do not in the Senate. Well, we're going to have to find some more policy active members. All right. Well, on that note, we're going to have to wrap it up because we are at time. I want to thank James for coming on um, and, and sharing his thoughts about the Senate. Appreciate it, James. And thank uh, you for having me and putting we, up with me. We will be, uh, we'll be back uh, in a couple weeks or a week or something. I don't know. Sometime soon, hopefully. Um, real quick for those people, Josh has got uh, something coming up on the budget for the newsletter. Go to gi.georgetown.edu. Um, you can go to the resources and publications and subscribe to the On the Hill newsletter for those of you who have, haven't already gotten it so that you can get a chance to see that when it comes out the next week. I promise we only send this newsletter out about once a month. It's not going to spam your email. We don't sell our list because, frankly, nobody would buy it. Um, but, well, I uh, just so, subscribe, so people are going to start buying that now. Yeah, well, there you go. Um, and so thank you so much, James, for giving us your time down there from the good, good old South. All right. I mean, I got to just leave it at that. Because it yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks, James. Awesome. Mm.